Welcome to the latest installment of the Sharp Best Ball Show. I'm your host, Todd Burrows, and we will be joined this week by Justin Herzig, another returning champion. Justin took down Best Ball Mania 1 and does great work on Best Ball for Establish the Run. You can find his work there. Today, we will mainly be focusing on the weekly winners format on Underdog Fantasy. And speaking of Underdog Fantasy, this show is sponsored by Underdog Fantasy and the biggest football tournament of all time, Best Ball Mania 4, with $3 million up top in first place. Don't know what Best Ball is? It's simple. You just enter Best Ball Mania on Underdog Slip mobile app, draft your team, and that's it. It's set it and forget it. As you, as Underdogs, great software will give your team the maximum points each week. Also, as mentioned, we are going to talk about Underdog's weekly winners contest, a unique new contest to the best ball space, where each week prizes will be given up to $20,000 and unique strategies are needed to take it down. Go to Underdog's mobile app and sign up or, and or sign up on your browser and add the code SHARPKIT and you'll get 40 articles from us over at Sharp Football meant to take down the top prize as well as Underdog will match your first $100. Go to Underdog Fantasy promo code SHARPKIT and sign up today. Justin, welcome. Thank you, Todd. Great to be here. Good to always chat with you. Um, uh, I'm, I'm excited for the conversation. I am too. Uh, you know, weekly, you know, uh, before we get into weekly winners, I think what everyone wants to hear from us right now, Justin, is our take on the Ezekiel Elliott and or Dalvin Cook landing spots and what it does to both their ADP and the ADP of Brees Hall and, of course, the other guy whose name I just completely <laughs> spaced on. Uh, Brees Hall and... Ramondre Stevenson. Uh, what is your, um, what is, let, let's start with the Patriots uh, and then go to the bigger issue, the Jets. Yeah, so with the Patriots, it's interesting. Um, I haven't understood why Ramondre has really stayed with his ADP of that kind of early mid thir uh, third round. Like I think his ADP was primarily staying around like 28 when I think like all the signs were pointing to, he was not going to be a workhorse. They were going to bring someone else in, or if they didn't bring someone else in, it was because they felt pretty confident Pierre Strong or Kevin Harris. And that one of those two was then going to, you know, uh, give uh, Ramondre a substantial breather, whether it's on early downs, whether it's goal line work. Like we knew there was always something there. So for me, I always had Ramondre kind of in that early fourth round or maybe late, late third, around that like 34 to 38 pick wise. Um, and so for me, I think this signing, it drops him now to even a little beyond that range because the amount of money that Zeke got, even if we in the industry don't believe Zeke is still like, you know, has that pop, that talent, um, the money that he signed for, the way that kind of coaches think of him from um, even that draft capital back in the day, I'm still expecting like Zeke to play a role, steal touchdowns. And so I think Ramon J should probably go in that maybe late 40s, mid 40s area. Um, or sorry, no, that's a little, yeah, I'd say late 30s, early 40s area. Um, Brees Hall, Brees Hall, I've been pretty excited about. Early on in the draft season, I wasn't drafting that much of him. 
uh, when he was in that early third round area. But as he started dropping to kind of the early fourth, I've been buying a decent amount because I thought there was a chance Dalvin wasn't going to go there. Now that Dalvin has signed, I think he continues to drop and he probably ends up in that kind of late 40s because now you've got, I think Dalvin still has a little more left in the tank than Zeke. You've got uh, the knee injury, I mean, the, the actual injury aspect of Brees as well. So I still think like Brees is going to fall past Ramondre, but maybe it's like early 40s for uh, Ramondre, late 40s for Brees. I'd be happy to take them, I think, if they actually get to that place. But I think it's going to take a while because ADP changes slowly for them to actually get to where they belong. So I'll start with those and say, I'm probably going to be fading them for a while. Yeah, so here's my thought. I didn't mind Ramondre in the mid-third round, um, and even once in a while early, because there's just not a lot of guys that I think have great value in the third round. Um, you know, whether it's T. Higgins, uh, uh, D.K. Metcalf. I mean, there are a lot of guys with a lot of questions in the third round for me personally. I feel like Zeke, you know, I was building in the fact that, you know, last year, Ramondre was, what, seventh highest scoring running back with Harris playing 11 games. Um, you know, I never expected him to have a workhorse role, but he's so active as a pass catcher. I feel like Zeke is actually a good match for his ADP because he is he's going to lose some goal line work, but he, he lost goal line work at times to Harris as well. They typically left whoever was out there on the field for the goal line. Um, I don't know that that's exactly what we'll see with Zeke there. Um, but, um, you know, I have no problem. If Ramondre falls to the fourth round, he's the guy that I'll be taking pretty regularly. With When it comes to Brees, I'm with you. I didn't have much in the third round. I was pretty underweight. But I, the last week or two, I've been adding him pretty regularly in the fourth round. I feel like he's the type of guy who, yes, there's questions. But again, I don't find anyone who's like super great there. And Brees has the kind of ability that can help you take down a tournament. Now, I think he's going to fall more because Dalvin, as you mentioned, is someone with a lot of juice left. I could see Brees. I mean, I got him in a best ball today in the sixth round. I, on DraftKings, I started out with five wide receivers and took Brees in the sixth round. I was on one of my chats, and one of the smart guys in there said it should be the seventh or eighth round. So, I mean, I feel like you get leverage over all the people who took Brees in the third round. Those teams are going to have a hard time advancing, making you know less people you have to compete with and he still has that late season upside that I like. Your thoughts on that? And then also address Dalvin and when and where you would or wouldn't be willing to draft him. Yeah, for sure. And uh, so for on that Ramondre one, with him finishing, as you mentioned, like seventh the year before, you also had Damian Harris out for pretty much half the season. I think there were only about 11 eight. games. Yeah, well, 11 it? games, but three of those games, he had like five or fewer touches because they got okay. hurt in two of them. Yep. Uh, so like Ramondre still like had a lot of that workhorse. If you look at the games, then like, hey, Damian Harris actually was healthy for the game. And Ramondre was there too. It's not nearly as appetizing as what we want as that kind of third rounder. Um, to the okay. Brees, I 100% agree from a playoff standpoint. And like, if you haven't been taking Brees yet, now is definitely the time to potentially take him. Because 
during drafts right now, there is a range of outcomes and where he gets drafted. I think his ADP is going to be slow to move down, but on an individual draft basis, there will be ones where, hey, he falls to that fifth, sixth, or whatever it is, and then it's like 100% snatch him up because, yes, yes, you have this increased risk of the Dalvin aspect, but I still think that he is, uh, as Pat Crane would say, the legendary upside type player. He is likely going to be peaking around the playoff time. And uh, he's the type of player that I've gotten excited about in the early fourth. I'll probably again get excited about if I can get him in that mid-fifth area um, or whatever it is. But 100% agree from a GTO, from a strategy aspect, there's increased opportunity, there's increased value to dropping him, to drafting him when he's dropping. Uh, yep. to the- and, for the, and for those who don't, under, uh, don't uh, follow this as much as Justin and I do, GTO is game theory aspect. There you go. Um, and now to the Dalvin one, it kind of goes the ex- the opposite way because if we think his ADP is going to increase, which I believe it will, uh, just because now you have more kind of uh, confidence and just like where his role is that he's going to have a job. I think the Jets like isn't that worst the, the worst of a landing spot. I think Dolphins would have been better. I do think there were better landing spots, but like this is the worst, especially considering how much he got paid. Um, but while I expect his ADP to increase. I'm out on him because I think from a talent and age, it's not worth it. I think the upside is severely capped from an overall season-long aspect. And then, again, if I'm now drafting him two rounds before he was going in the past, I'm missing out on value compared to those previous teams. Um, I'm trying to see, like, if we look at from an ETR standpoint, ETR, we have him at 87 right now. So it's just a little above his underdog ADP, which I think is, like, in the mid-90s. Uh, but again, I'm expecting him to move past that, and you're going to have to almost, uh, you know, buy buy at a higher price than what he's been recently. Yeah, and as I look, I, I love that. I agree with that. Um, the one thing I'm going to add from a, you know, Jets are going to jet kind of perspective, you know, because this makes no sense, right? I made a tweet today about how we we, we try and build our portfolios. And we try and lean into what rational thought would lead us to. Uh, but we don't always get rational thought. Um, you know, so I, I, uh, the other thing is that Brees was cleared today for, uh, for work. And Dalvin is still not cleared with his shoulder, which is kind of one of those under-the-radar things. Because I think people are thinking, well, Dalvin will come in and he'll have the early role. And if he plays well, he'll, he'll keep a lot of it. I mean, it's possible he comes in and is more ready to play than Brees. But I, I don't know that that's guaranteed, Justin. Yeah, I, I think with the Brees injury, because he's been with the team, they're very familiar with the situation. I believe they're going to have just more information to play, you know, more desire to play it slow based off that information. And ideally, Dalvin should be ready to begin the season, if not week one, right after that. I think like there's an expectation of that. There's no way that they would have signed him for this if there wasn't an expectation he'd be ready very close at the beginning of the season. That just seemed shocking. Fair enough. Um, very fair. And so, yeah, I mean, I'm, again, out on Dalvin and on Brees if he's falling to those kind of high 40s, low 50s. Um, and I think that game theory aspect comes into play with uh, these movements. Guys. Yeah, and I, I think we could probably put Zeke into a very similar mode as Dalvin, um, a guy that is going to move up and um, probably doesn't have the kind of upside we're looking for. Um, so uh, would you agree with that as well? 
Yeah. Um, I think you need to, I mean, if Ramondre got hurt, like I could see him being a workhorse. That is like the one benefit to this. That's true. For him. I, I, I think Strong is the better running back at this point. Uh, it's puzzling to me. I, I, I mean, there's a scenario for me, Justin, where they brought him in to just take about 100 to 125 carries in between the 20s and occasionally in the red zone. Just, you know, so that that opens up the receiving role for Ramondre. Um, I think the reports are saying that they'd likely that they'd like him for short yarded situations. So I think that needs to be included. And uh, that's also, as you said, like, hey, where we've seen Damien before. Um, and so I think that was kind of a gap that needed to be filled. But definitely agree with you that, like, I don't consider Ezekiel Elliott a threat to overtaking Ramondre. Um, but I think if they actually like Pierre Strong, they wouldn't have signed Zeke. If they actually liked that's what fair. they had behind him. And I think that's what they were hoping. I think they waited to sign Zeke or waited to sign for net or whoever, because they were hoping that whoever that number two is, was going to shine in preseason in training camp. And that didn't happen. So I think those guys' chances are kind of gone. And this is a Ramondre Zeke show. Uh, if Ramondre gets hurt, gosh, it's ugly. But like Zeke probably turns into a top 20 back. That's a fair point. And with that, we will cycle over to uh, weekly winners. Justin, I felt I had an unbelievable edge the first couple weeks as no one seemed to be able to process just how different this contest is from tournament best ball. And about a week, week and a half in, I saw your tweet where you said that you had looked deeper into this format and that we needed to throw out almost everything we know about best ball to compete. I am so glad that not everyone has changed their mind and, like you did and I do think there remains a significant edge right now in weekly winners. What are would you agree with that? And what edges are you seeing in the weekly winners streets? Yeah, I would say definitely edge. I enjoy this tournament from a strategy aspect a lot. Uh, there's some constructive feedback that I'd provide where I think like the min cash of the ten out of fifteen dollars each week. Um, unfortunately kind of keeps the top end prizes lower and that's why it's filling slower. Um, but I think from a pure strategy aspect, I really like this tournament, uh, for me, um, when I think through like what the best ball ecosystem looks like right now, so many people are drafting based off the data, the analysis, the takes that are all kind of baked off the same thing, which is underdog best ball mania data. That's what we have. That's where there's been some amazing research. Leone's manifesto, so many other people that have been all the data bowl aspects that have come out of it, all of these findings. And those are about how to thrive, how to succeed in the best ball mania environment. And some of them focus on week 17. But in general, they're all focusing on advance rate. And when we think of advance rate, you need to have floor and median outcomes to actually propel your portfolio and your teams forward. Those floor and median outcomes are completely irrelevant in this structure. So thinking how to draft where you're purely focusing on how can you hit those top 1%, top 0.1% outcomes and completely giving in to all of the safety, all of the mean, all of the floor aspects that come into play is really a way that you need to kind of be rethinking that way that you draft. Yeah, so for me, my initial thought, and I'm not, I'm not a numbers guy like you are, like some other people are, I, I, it's just not part of my ability to, 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 you know, do that. But just from a game theory perspective, 
you know, it, the light went on for me after a, a day or two when I realized that really where each, you know, each team really should be focused on one result, right? And the more that you, you know, you remember from Mike Leone's uh, manifesto, he talked about how the more active players you have, um, the more active players you have, the better your chances of advancing during the playoffs. So I take that into this context and say, every lineup I make, I'm hoping for at least one week where my main stack puts up a score that either you have to have or is close enough, right? And then the goal, therefore, is to give yourself as many uh, uh, as much odds elsewhere as you can to try and hit that uh, major combo. Your thoughts uh, on that? I, I compare it to uh, uh, it's more like a sniper bullet. Okay. Um, I, I like that. So when I saw your early drafts, I definitely thought that, like, okay, he definitely understands from a general idea of like similar things to what I'm thinking. Um, and a lot of that was like the ideas of going very, go, like taking advantage of upside areas and then saying, hey, I'm going to then use depth to get me maybe those upside later on. And I think what's important is to think through where you can get upside in drafts and uh, like using balanced approaches to drafts can work very well from an advance rate because when you're drafting, um, I don't know, let's say Curtis Samuel on the 17th, I love Curtis Samuel on the 17th as a value play, but what are the chances based off who you've already drafted that he's going to actually show up in your top three wide receivers, top four, including flex and such. And uh, so thinking through how can I optimize appropriately for when your early picks go right, where should I be devoting the rest of my draft capital? Yeah. So the biggest eye opener for me, Justin, was the fact, you know, if you're super spike weak guy, let's say Cooper Cup, you draft him in the first round, he, he gives you a 45 point week. You know, in a in a week, you know, in a normal tournament week, you know, he might be 20, 25 percent owned max, right? In this tournament, there's gonna be twenty-one thousand four hundred and ninety-nine other teams with Cooper Cup, of which only seven thousand 300, I think it is, are going to make anything. So um, it really, to me, was that a, was that as a big of an eye opener for you as it was for me? So when I ask you, is that is that a lot of teams or not a lot of teams? I, I presume you're saying 21,000 is a lot of teams, right? Yeah. Uh, in other words, yeah. In, in other words, okay. you know, if you hit Cooper Cup and he gets you the 45 point week. How are you going to separate, you know, because we're trying to get the top 10 spot, right? You get, if you do a hundred of these and you get one tenth place finish out of all your teams, you're profitable, right? But the goal is to try and get first place. Yeah. If you have Cooper Cup, and in other words, all you've done is he's, he gets you the 45 point week. It's like, okay, now what I'm going to, what am I going to do? But I mean, here's how I think of it is for DFS, you said Cooper Cup might be 20 to 25% owned. If we're thinking of a similar contest size with 260,000 entries, that means that Cooper Cup is actually on like 
60,000 entries. Here, at most, each player is going to be 8% known, one out of 12, 8.3, whatever it is. So when I think about like, hey, I have the opportunity to get some of these elite players and they're only going to be 8% owned, that's actually a better situation than most of your DFS contests. Um, I, 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 all right, I'm going to disagree and I'll tell you why. There's 21,500 leagues. Every single one of those leagues are going to have Cooper Cup. Right. From a perspective of DFS, it's 100% ownership. You're so, not fading one Cooper Cup league. Okay, so in DFS, if there's a $260,000 person entry tournament and 8% of lineups choose to use Cooper Cup, you're competing against 21,499 other lineups that have Cooper Cup, right? Okay. That's the same yep. thing here. But in those tournaments, a lot of those elite guys are actually, as you say, 20, 25% owned. So now I'm getting actually these elite guys. And when my elite guy goes off, I'm actually getting them at like 8% ownership, which from a DFS standpoint, you're pretty happy about. Because then it's, okay, how do I start getting unique elsewhere? And that's where the conversation for me begins. Because in DFS, if, I dra if I'm taking Cooper Cup, he's $9,200 salary. He's very expensive. A lot of the lineups start looking pretty similar. Because if you go expensive Cooper Cup, you're probably going Matthew Stafford and stacking him. Okay. You probably are now going to go cheap running backs because you've got this expensive wide receiver. You're definitely going cheap tight end. You can't go Cooper Cup and Travis Kelsey. That's too expensive. And so from a DFS angle, we can start thinking about how can you go against the grain so you're a little different than most other Cooper Cup teams. Maybe actually you do go Cooper Cup and Travis Kelsey, and now you're very unique. And now instead of 21,000, maybe only 50 teams actually started with Cooper Cup and Travis Kelsey. Now, we think about it from a weekly winner's standpoint. How can I find ways to get unique? Because if we use the Cooper Cup again, example again, most likely teams that draft Cooper Cup are going to end up with Saquon Barkley, Jalen Waddell, maybe Tony Pollard, maybe, uh, maybe Garrett Wilson. Like that's who often goes in that mid-second round. Mm -hmm. So maybe if you say, you know what, instead of after my Cooper Cup, I'm going to do one of two things. One, if Devontae Adams falls to me, let me grab Devontae because that's unique because he doesn't normally fall that far. But if the tier that I'm looking at is actually widely available, let me actually go grab someone that's like T. Higgins or Devonta Smith, who don't, who's not pairing that much. And maybe you're like, you know what, other people got that person in the third round, fine. Then your next one, you're also grabbing an early third rounder because now you've got three players that are very unique. Now, when we think about, okay, well, why don't we do this in underdog or why don't we do this you know, in our normal best ball drafts? Well, because you're giving up too much value in advance rate. That's why we don't want to reach on players or kind of make these negative EV decisions in an individual pick basis because we're giving up that advance rate that's so important just to get us to the playoffs. And when you get to week 17, you're only competing against 445 teams. So it's not that important for you to get this unique ownership of Cooper Cup and whoever those other two players are. But in this format, it doesn't matter if you're actually giving up a couple weeks where you, you know, you gave up some projected points, you gave up some median. It doesn't matter if it's like, hey, you have some really bad weeks because each week you have to beat out 260,000 other entries to really make this worth it. So how can you find ways to get unique 
with that combinatorial ownership aspect. And that's how I take Cooper Cup from being one of 21,000 to maybe I've got Cooper Cup and two guys. That's really only one of 10. Yeah, so I like that. And I, I've thought of that. It hasn't been the main way that I've done it. The way that I've done it is to try and maintain the value, but be different. So, you know, it, it's kind of taking a page out of your tournament book of being fragile at one of the other positions, the running back or. So typically what I'll do, one of the sneaky kind of things about this is on the weeks where cup hits, you know that you've got one of your wide receiver spots filled, right? So I'm much more, I'm more likely to, whoever I designate in this lineup as my super spike week guy, that is the position that I tend to be fragile at. So I'll go six early wide receivers, and then I will use a lot of players at the running back position. So I, what I've been doing is mixing in fragility with um, – with what you're talking about um, as a way to be different. I think both ways can work. Your thoughts? Yeah, no, I think that's definitely a play as well. Um, and for me, that gives me, it's not so much from a uniqueness angle, but it's more for me of a, hey, this is a strong way to draft where I'm optimizing for, I've got three or four players that are a lead upside in those first couple rounds. Maybe I went four wide receivers or something. And then later on, I'm going to use depth and just throw in a whole bunch of running backs. And I hope that amongst my nine running backs, I'm getting two or three to actually plug into my lineup. And I think that what you're saying is, hey, where you're elite, be fragile. Where you are struggling, go for depth, go for volume and hope that you can kind of match these together. And then it's also, I mean, you think through, okay, who my players are what works from a weekly standpoint, which running backs do I want? Am I trying to win early on? Do I want to focus on a Jamal Williams later on or in that same pick? Do I want to go for a, um, trying to think who is just after him. Um, I don't know. Ro Roshan Johnson's a little further down, but like, or Roshan where I'm focusing on the latter half. Um, right. Yep. I, yeah, I don't know it, if I'm, yeah, go for it. I was going to say, I don't know if I'm able, but I'd love to kind of share a share my screen and go through one tweet you that can. I put out. Yeah, awesome. If you look at it and you go to the mid, right next to your camera, there's a button. Yep. Okay. Are you able to see uh, this screen? Yep. It's very small, but we can see it. Okay. I'll pump it up. Uh, okay. So woke up, drafted Cooper Cup and Stefan Diggs in a weekly winners. Initially, that's just a very unique combination, we agree, right? Absolutely. And so in that draft, like, okay, I've got this unique combo. That's one easy way where, like, Stefan Diggs somehow fell to me. Cooper Cup also fell too. I then posted the entire team here. And I can kind of talk through it, but, uh, A, there were jokes because some people didn't know it was a weekly winners and such. But, like, even people who did know it was weekly winners, I was still getting a ton of crap for taking only six wide receivers and taking four tight ends, even though I drafted George Kittle. And for me in this structure, when I think through like what I was going for here, I have Cooper Cup and Stephon Diggs, which is a very unique combo. And so my chance of winning is going to be when Cooper Cup and Stephon Diggs just put together the two highest scoring weeks. What can I now do with the rest of my team so that when those two blow up, I can really 
give myself upside um, at all other positions. And so from the top, it's Fields and Purdy. I did Purdy because I've got the double stack with Ayuk and Kittle. And most importantly, down here with this Kittle aspect is when you're looking at the end of drafts, we're looking at Isaiah Likely. We're looking at Higby. Like if you're comparing the wide receivers that are available here versus the tight ends, what's more likely on a weekly basis? That Tyler Higby outscores George Kittle and puts up like a, de- a good enough week that other tight ends also don't do well, or that I'm drafting, I don't know, we we'll use Van Jefferson around the same place. And Van Jefferson not only outscores my other elite guys, but also outscores the competition's wide receivers there as well. So when you can think through, how can I take advantage of different parts of the draft where the likeliness of the outcome for them to outscore the rest of their position, tight ends at the end made a lot of sense for this, even though I invested heavily in George Kittle. Yeah, I love that. So um, I think uh, another one of my big strategies for this contest is I really feel like tight end is a position where you can separate, right? Uh, because it's so touchdown dependent and it's half PPR, you know, being able to access whatever the big tight end score of that week is, um, I, I, I'm all in for, and I approach it very similar to the way you do, because while we do see the elite tight ends have more uh, big weeks than anyone else, we also get a bunch of random guys throughout each year who have two touchdown games that help them separate. So I am very, very often taking a one of the top tight ends, that tier of uh, Mark Andrews through, say, Kyle Pitts. Um, and that includes uh, Waller now since he's moved up. And then I'm taking two or three later tight ends uh, because I'm most of my drafts, I'm only doing one quarterback. I do too sometimes, and I get why you did too here. So talk about your quarterback strategy, and I think we're saying the same things on tight end, correct? Yeah, so for the tight end, I completely agree with what you're saying. I think there's one additional point that's worth calling out in that, yes, it is easiest for the elite tight ends or for tight ends just that have big weeks to separate from the field. So that's a good argument for grabbing an elite one. It's also a good argument for grabbing volume, and maybe you hit on that right one. But what we kind of ignore is that 40% of weeks or so, no tight end separates from the field. And in those weeks, how do you separate yourself from the others? Well, one is you didn't draft and spend capital on that elite tight end. And so that allows you just to have another extra player. Or you, even though you didn't separate, you got the tight end that at least beat the others by three, maybe by four or five. And you did it at a low draft capital. And it is far more likely that a late tight end is able to, one, have a week where no tight end goes off 40% of the time or something. And two, those late tight ends actually beat your early picks, even if it is by only a couple points. Compare how likely that's to happen at running back or wide receiver. Wide receiver, I'm going to tell you that no wide receiver went off that day. And this wide receiver actually got close and beat them. Like, that's just extremely unlikely because there's so many more at that position. But for the tight ends, especially last year, you had Kelsey and everyone else. Weeks that Kelsey didn't go off, there's a chance that no one went off. Or if it did, it's Cole Komet went off with two touchdowns for 30 yards or something. 
or one of these late tight ends that went like for a touchdown in 60 or something. Uh, so agree with the tight ends, but I think there's also we need to play for Leone actually likes to do this um, for his small field tournaments. When the weeks are shit, how do you build a team that capitalizes on that week? And I think that's a weekly winner strategy as well as when, hey, just no one goes off. How do we build the right team in that environment? I think that is a very, very uh, good point. And it makes me want to not always feel like I need to take an elite tight end in every team. Um, That being said, I I mean, this year more than any year I can remember, I like the late tight ends. I think that the value, you know, we don't want to just throw out value if we can get it. And I think the value late in draft often is tight end. And then when you look at uh, what Hayden put out recently about the percentage of time people uh, fill the flex, you know, wide receiver is not nearly as big as what the field thinks it is as far as filling in the flex. To your point about uh, the non-good weeks where people, you know, that's why I do a lot of Brock Purdy solo uh, teams. I'll pick one of his weapons and I'll, I'll mix drafts up. So one draft, it might be Ayuk. Another draft, it'll be Debo. Another draft, it'll be Kittle. Because the draft capital on him is so low, if you get that week where he goes off and he gets you 23 points and no no one among the elites get more than 25, now you're in a really good position because you didn't Wait, you know, I don't want to say waste, but you didn't use another position or another uh, roster spot or two on quarterback. Um, and and I've done a couple where I'll take one of the Tennessee wide receivers. I even did one with Chig uh, with Tannehill, and then also have Purdy. So I I am oh I probably do one quarterback eighty percent of the time in these. But when I take two, it's when I look at the end and I've got someone on the team and a quarterback who is so cheap that, you know, let's say I have a cup team with Stafford um, or even a Fields team, uh, not a field, like a Watson team. If I've got uh, Watson and Cooper, uh, I I will sometimes take that late quarterback if I've got, you know, a guy I think is a spike week guy late. Your thoughts on that? I, I think that makes sense. Um, I would push to, uh, I'd push to think of late round in this structure to not just be end of draft or last like 15, 16, 17, 18, but even starting at 10, 11, 12, um, because we're not caring about your depth across the entire season. We're caring about one week. And so when you think of the starters of that, you're thinking of the, you know, non QBs we're talking about, two, three, and a flex, that's six, tight end, seven. So uh, the difference between if you're drafting your QB in that 10th, 11th, or the 17th, 18th, you may already have your starters for that week already drafted, especially if we're talking 11th or 12th, because then you've got 10 rounds. Did you get seven starters in that 10? For high upside, like decent chance you did. So I, you know, while we think of like drafts as 17th rounders so much different than 11th or 12th in traditional formats, in this best ball one, I really like going after those 10th, 11th, 12th round ones because it allows me to go 
as elite as I can early on, but now I'm not giving up the kind of upside um, and just value with the quarterbacks aspect. And so my highest own is Anthony Richardson. I've got 24%. I've got a bunch of Daniel Jones. Um, and then I've got a bunch of like Deshaun Watson, Tua, those guys who from a weekly standpoint, they stack well, and I'm not giving up substantial kind of elite value. This isn't to say I'm not against elite type QB. I still think elite QB works really well for this format. But if I'm waiting, I don't think there's as much value to waiting till 15, 16, 17 and just going one because you could draft one in 10, 11, 12, and you're just providing yourselves with more outs. I love that, and it's in line with what I've been pretty much doing. Um, I want to look at something real quick. I haven't. I'm so less concerned with ownership in weekly winners that I really haven't looked. Um, so I, I've got almost 20% Justin Fields, 15% Brock Purdy, 13% Tua, 10% Trevor Lawrence, 10%. Ryan Tannehill, and 9% uh, Daniel Jones, 7% Aaron Rodgers. So basically what I'm saying there is I agree with you um, because as early as the elite quarterbacks have gone this year compared to historical and traditional best ball, they go even earlier in weekly winners. And a lot of my field's ownership was before he, you know, when he was still in the fifth round when, when this first started, I did probably four or five Justin Fields right off the bat because I felt he was underpriced in this format. Um, I really don't have much of the elite guys, up, so I guess I'm building kind of for that what you talk about, the weeks where um, you know those guys don't go off as much. Or I'm hoping that you know if, if, if Josh Allen goes for 35, maybe it's not all through Steph Diggs. Um, anyway, uh, I, I, I'd say thoughts, but I really didn't have a question in there. No worries. All right. So, um, I do think that, that, you know, I, I've even made some two, uh, uh, Mike White, uh, lineups where I'll throw him in the 20th round because I got both Waddle and, um, Tyreek. And I had one lineup where I waited two rounds before I took two. I got him in like the nineties. Uh, because I said, I got I got both Hill and Waddle. Let me try and stretch this out and see if I get value. Um, are there any other strategies that I haven't thought of that you have that we haven't covered so far with weekly winners? Um, I mean, I think why it's such a great game is that people are still trying to, you know, figure it out. And right now it's there's no data around it. Um, even myself, like I'm a little hesitant to put everything I've thought through out there because one is like, Hey, I think there is some edge and, uh, um, I, I you know, completely don't want to just, you know, Hey, give everything out. But the other thing is, is I know that I have a bit of a platform and if I start kind of spewing things that I think are true, but then they end up not being like, I really don't want to just completely influence based off like what I'm thinking around, like, I don't know historical data that's not even like underdog tournament data it's like literally field data and then figuring out what we think is going to happen and what kind of teams can look like i think one thing to reference that we didn't talk about is roster construction from a you know traditionally we do something like two six seven three you can give like some minor variation from there um that gets completely thrown out the window i've done many of these that are 
one four eleven. I don't know. I'm trying to think what Matt. Maybe one four ten three. One four nine four. I've done ones where it's like four wide receivers. I think maybe I did five. I don't think I've done four. I've done either four or five wide receivers and then gone heavy at like the um, running back. If I've done like Kelsey and Mahomes, I'll definitely go one one there. And then depending on what the rest of it looks like. I'm either going something like uh, 8, 8, 6, 10. Like there's a lot of variations that I guess at the end of the day, we care about roster construction in best ball because of advance rates. You don't want to draft only one because you care, you know, those zeros hurt you. And this, a zero is kind of the same thing as getting a 10 or a 12 in most weeks. You're not placing. So uh, don't kind of try to get a balanced build if you're doing it just from a roster construction angle. Yeah, and I I am more concerned with uh, out of the so-called best ball experts, right? I am I you know you got to know your role and who you are. I I tend to be more of a stickler for the rules than some guys, right? Uh, I'm always very concerned with uh, injuries and ex- player exposure. Uh, I'm very concerned with roster construction and advance rate, maybe more than the average guy. That's why I love this so much, because when the light bulb went on, Justin, it's just an amazing amount of fun to take all that stuff and say, fuck, you know, F it, right? You know, I, I don't have to worry about roster construction. I don't have to worry about exposures. I can build the team of my dreams because all I want is for that team to give me that one week where I get a top 10 finish and that pays off, you know, pretty much everything that at least I'm going to be doing with weekly winners. Is it as freeing for you as well? Um, I definitely hear that. I, I, I just love the idea. I love games. I love thinking through new games and I love thinking through new strategies. And uh, while I think like best ball traditional format still is a game, still has some strategy, still has a lot of things we can learn uh, where we are in its current form is kind of boxed in. There's definitely some things you can do outside the norm to test, but like based off the data we have, based off the things we know, we're all kind of in the same world here. I think one of the great things about this is we can go all out and like, I can tell you with confidence that some strategies are bad, but I cannot tell you with some confidence that some strategies are like really good. And uh, that's kind of what I love about this is like, you can come up with something and uh, start using it, really test it. Because I will say, unfortunately, we're going to learn a ton about this game next year. I presume that they're going to release this data. It's going to be a large enough from a team structure sample size. Yes, it's one year of data, but that doesn't really... We can adjust for that. But like from the way that people are drafting, we're going to learn a ton. It's not going to be solved next year, but we're going to see a lot of people doing the exact same thing. And I've kind of got some guesses around what that is. And I think it's going to be without giving away too much. But like, I believe next year, we're going to see people going wide receiver very, very heavy early on. I think we're going to see tight ends other than the elite kind of going very late and going a volume approach. I think running backs is also going to turn into a volume approach because you have more of a chance to kind of match the elite ones with mid and later running backs than you do with mid and later wide receivers. Um, That's not being adjusted for right now. That's again, that's what I believe. I'm trying not to 
preach it or push it too much because it could be wrong. And like, I'm only working from what I've been able to put together from a data standpoint. Um, but that's what I think we're going to see. And uh, hey, we'll come back next year, Todd. We'll uh, see how wrong or maybe right I was. Um, but it'll it'll be interesting. This year is definitely the wild, wild west for it. Next year will be, okay, since we're all doing this, what's the next step? And that was going to be my next point. But before I get to my next point, I, I, I want to reference a tweet that I made pretty early on after the light bulb went off. I made a tweet that basically said, now is the time to play weekly winners heavy, that it's going to be a lot more of a solved game next year. Um, and, 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 you know, I mean, I would say one of the things that's really going to change, you mentioned a bunch of them, and I agree with all everything you said. But I think one quarterback is going to be a lot more popular next year than it is currently. You, When I go through these drafts, you know, when we get to the end of the drafts, pretty much every quarterback is drafted in most of my weekly winners that are drafted in a normal tournament team. And I think that will change a tremendous amount next year because I, my guess, my personal guess is that one QB teams are going to win, not every week, but they're going to win enough that it becomes what most people are doing come next year. Thoughts? I disagree. Okay. And I think there's a sample bias. I'm not saying that what you're saying is wrong or what they should be doing, but not enough people are drafting mid and late QBs by themselves to prove that out in my mind. And what I mean by that is okay. we're going to see in weeks that Daniel Jones was the number one QB, you optimally maybe only should have had Daniel Jones in that lineup, but way too many people, so many people right now, you're like, of the people who have Daniel Jones, I'm making this number up, but let's say 90% are doing it with another QB. So even though that 10% is actually more optimally constructed than the other 90%, the other 90% just by full brute, by you know sheer brute force, and player combinations is going to win more often than the 10% that's Daniel Jones. So if you isolate this, and this is what we would need to do from like, we do it from an advanced rate and such, but you isolate and show, okay, the teams that drafted one QB versus the ones that didn't, how many points did they or dollars did they actually gain on it? That's where I can see an argument for the one QB making sense. Um, my, what I actually think is more of the optimal is if you're doing an earlier QB this year, it's probably top five times top six. Um, or if you are heavily stacking, it makes sense just to go with that one QB. Um, I don't think, I think right now there's too many people who are just saying, Hey, in the 14th round, you shouldn't grab that second QB because you already have a QB. But the truth is a 14th round pick in weekly winners for running back for wide receiver is not that valuable. And if you can get a QB that is stacked with someone on your team, that's going to likely provide you more value to your team than trying to get that 15th round wide receiver or something. Yeah. And that's what Hayden said. And I, I absolutely think that has merit. Um, you know, it's not the way I'm playing it simply because, you know, back to the availability thing, I would rather have more availability for the, the one week that my main stack hits. Uh, but I, I think it's certainly a very, very, very viable way of doing it. 
Um, the 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 last uh, two things I want on weekly winners. The first if, one is if, if we could pause on that real quick because I'm actually curious your take on this. Um, because a lot of our thought is around the stack, as you said, and you want to play for when your stack goes off that you want to make sure like when your when your primary stack goes off, you want to give yourself as many outs of the other picks, right? What Correct. if we th- right? Okay. What if I said, well, rather than my stack, what if like when my top two running backs go off, I want to give myself as many other outs with my other picks, especially. Well, uh, 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 absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. That is a, okay. I, I, I didn't phrase that as well as I wanted because um, there are plenty of teams that I build around Christian McCaffrey and I don't have a quarterback with him. Those teams I'm going to, you know, that was actually my first idea for this whole thing was to take a Christian McCaffrey, a Jonathan Taylor, and then, you know, two or three, this is before the whole Taylor thing happened, and then two or three very late running backs, and then just build around that assumption. So I should have phrased it more that whatever whatever your super spike week idea is for that team, that you want to give yourself as many outs as possible for when that hits. I like that a lot. I like that a lot. And uh, in those examples, if you went Mahomes and Kelsey, those are what you're playing for the spike weeks. Don't draft another QB, another wide receiver, another tight end. If you went Justin Herbert with Keenan Allen and I don't know, maybe you went for Quentin Johnston or something like, yeah, it's not worth taking another quarterback because you've already invested so much in that offense, in that team. But I think where people are missing, which you just said accurate, which I love, is that, well, well, what if you invested heavily in your running backs? And when those running backs hit well, maybe, yes, you're too, uh, let's not use two, let's use Daniel Jones and Darren Waller. Yes, you have Daniel Jones and Darren Waller, but maybe, you know what, that stack also isn't always going to hit. So when your running backs hit, you also want to set yourself up with a uh, Anthony Richardson, um, I don't know, or Deshaun Watson and David Njoku. Same idea, I guess maybe a little harder with the ADPs and stuff. But then it's as you're saying, I've invested heavily in this top. I'm winning when these guys at the very top go off. For me, these are running backs. So let me provide myself with some more outs for that, uh, the rest of the draft. And correlated outs, particularly with a QB and a tight end or QB and wide receiver stacks. Yep. All right. Let, um, absolutely. And that was that was the big idea. Uh, the other thing that I'm doing far less, and you did it in the lineup you showed, so I want to uh, point to it and ask to it because I might be wrong. I am doing far less of the Ayuk and Kittle on the same lineups. I'll do it, but typically not on not with that much early draft capital. Right, I'll throw it like I'll throw if I'm doing a Fields team and I have DJ Moore, would I consider Chase Claypool at the end? Absolutely, but um, I'm not. I'm again because of the sniper bullet thought. I'm not saying it can't happen. We saw a week last, and I and I draft plenty of Tyreek and Waddle together because uh, we saw that week last year where they both went off. So it's not a yes or no. But in general, I'm much less likely to add a second stack on a team with early draft capital. Your thoughts on that? 
I think that's right. Um, I do not want to be drafting Chase and hit. Like, I think it depends on who the players are. Cause as you said, like that Tyreek and Waddle, yes, they can both go off. And it's really because they're unique and that they're both like speed demons and extremely efficient. Um, but like Keenan Allen and Mike Williams, I don't want to have both those on the same team with Justin Herbert because Keenan Allen, he wins with a high volume aspect. And uh, especially I don't want to have Keenan Allen and Austin Eckler. Like, those two guys are high volume. To be honest, Jamar Chase and T. Higgins. Like it is, I don't think we've seen a game that they both have gone off. And we're looking no. for like absolute elite outcomes. So I'm gonna agree with you. The earlier the draft capital, I don't want to have same from the you know, as many mouths from the same um the same team. I think IU can kittle. I think I'm okay with it. It's like right at that edge. Like it's, I don't think it's, it's close. It's close, right? I, so I'm, because, I'm and but the reason it's close is because you're drafting Brock Purdy in the 15th, 16th round, and so you know I don't feel like you need. You know I feel it's different mm-hmm. than if you're drafting Justin Herbert in the fifth with two other options early. Right. Yeah, I'm ge- I'm devoting a fifth and a seventh rounder to those two, and then that's kind of all my draft capital I have to expend, expand, expend because I don't really care about the Purdy in the seventeenth or whatever. But as you said with the Herbert, you're draft, you're devoting third, fourth, sixth, fifth, or something. That's a ton um, to you know when their outcomes kind of yes. Those wide receivers are correlated together, but their one percent outcomes are not correlated, and that's where you want to look at the right the teams and such to figure that out. Um, I think another thing that's kind of worth noting here is the one-off wide receivers. Uh, I, I I don't know like how to correctly how to succinctly state this, but I'll use Michael Pittman as an example. I don't love drafting Michael Pittman on my weekly winners teams when I don't have Anthony Richardson. Because in weeks that Michael Pittman has a great week, Anthony Richardson probably also had a fantastic week. Because we already know he's getting 80 yards, 60 yards rushing on the ground. If he also threw for 200 yards, Pittman had 158, two touchdowns, whatever. Like, now I've got to beat Anthony Richardson with my QB. I'd rather say, instead of Michael Pittman, give me Mike Evans. Because Mike Evans, we like a QB who's not rushing as much. I guess Jordan Addison's a better example because Kirk Cousins is not doing anything on the ground. If Jordan Addison has a big week, he's a great one-off on my team because just him having a big week doesn't mean Kirk Cousins had to have had a big week as well. So when I think through like one-off, that's another thing where think about the player you're getting it right, what else kind of happens? Because if Addison has a huge game, Jefferson's probably not having a good game. So that's, I guess... He could be having a good game, but from the 1% outcomes inside, <laughs> uh, anything is possible. Throw it in the wind. But a general idea of like that Pittman one is something I've been trying to internalize and figure out. And I think DJ Moore, Michael Pittman, maybe Darren Waller, but like these quarterbacks that have rushing kind of expectation, if we know they're also getting it done in the air, that's the QB you probably want. So why are you kind of going against that uphill battle? You know, that's one I hadn't thought of at all. I do think it has merit. It's you know, With Pittman, I don't mind it because he falls so far in drafts. And, you know, in the seventh round, Michael Pittman can get me 20 points. He might not be the guy that wins it for me, but he is a solid piece that helps me get to the top. Um, but I, I absolutely think there's merit there. I was going to ask you one other question on how you're handling exposure uh, down the stretch here. 
Um, you know, I, I blend my exposure, especially early, because there's so much value out there and so much unknown out there. Now, a lot of the value disappears as we actually see, you know, more pieces of the puzzle filled in. We've got about two minutes. Um, I, I'm really focusing on my conviction plays right now and building up my exposure toward the end. Do you like that strategy? Is it something that you think of? Yeah, I think conviction makes sense. I think for me, um, huh, maybe because I'm less confident on my conviction, uh, I'm more likely going for things that I know are to be true, such as unique combinatorial connect, uh, connect, unique combinatorial pairings, because I know what's been drafted previously. So if I can get this unique aspect, I know that to be true, whether or not the player takes is accurate, doesn't actually matter. I'm just making a bet that, hey, if it does work, this is unique. Similar to uniqueness in the 18th round, I know which running backs, which wide receivers have not been, been drafted the first two thirds of BBM um, or weekly winners or whatever tournament we're talking about. So getting unique aspects, I'm and I can know that I'm getting that to this point. So I think that's great. Um, the other thing that I'm working on right now is, ah, right. We talked about this earlier. I think ADPs, while we expect them to be efficient, they are very slow to change. Uh, so when we have opportunities where we think there's going to be movement, getting ahead of that now, even if you expect like that player is still going to keep going, I think there's value. For me right now, an example is Raheem Mostert. I think that he is going to have a more major role in that offense that people are expecting, uh, especially to start the season. I think he's a screaming value. So I'm willing to draft him at kind of the 135 to 140 range, which is like a round or a round and a half before he goes. Even though, like, I know I'm giving up value on him, I think, like, where he's been drafted before, I still think he's a great fit. And so there's some guys that that's what I'm really looking at right now to kind of uh, round off my uh, exposure. Yeah, I think that is a tremendous point. Um, I was trying to think of someone late who I'm doing that with. One of them happens to be both Mostert and Jeff Wilson, who I think are, you know, you know, Mostert, I think, is more likely to be the guy, but it could be Wilson uh, through injury or whatever. Um, Justin, I, I think this was a tremendous episode. I uh, really appreciate every time you come on and uh, good luck with your teams and with what the work you do over at Establish the Run. And we will see you next week on the Sharp Best Ball Show.